0: This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, July 24th, 2016 at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. So today, after two weeks of being gone, I get to come back and preach Genesis 19, which should be awesome. Escaping Brimstone. What a title, huh? So let's get into it. I'm going to read the entire chapter and then we're going to go through it. It's very difficult Um, chapter in terms, if you've never read it before, may be familiar to others. Genesis 19 says this, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, Nope, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who, you came, who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters. Who have not known any man, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. The men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law's. Who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. And he seemed to his son's laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Take up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you he be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. They brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? My life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And look, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went out to Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. He lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, "Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come to us after the manner of all the earth. Come let us make our father drink wine, and we'll lie with him, and we may preserve offspring from our father." So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and did not know when she had lay down or when she arose. And the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, "Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him a drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him." We may preserve our offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn a son called his name Moab, he's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son called his name Ben-Ami, and he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is God's word, and a pretty stark one, it is. Do you know that was in the Bible? At the end of Genesis 18, we read that the Lord and several of his angels appear to Abraham to foretell the future birth of his son from Sarah, Isaac. And as they prepare to leave, Abraham walks with them out and he takes them to a place, the Lord does, where they can see the Jordan Valley. And the Lord looks towards the cities of the Jordan Valley specifically Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord says, in his own words, that the outcry from the cities are great, that the sin is grave, and he intends to go down to see if it's as bad as what he's heard. And the implication is pretty clear when the Lord says that it is as bad as he has heard, and he's actually going to destroy the cities for their gross unrighteousness. Now, knowing that his nephew Lot lives there, Abraham asked the Lord, Is okay, so you're going to wipe out these wicked people. Would you, um, are you going to spare the righteous that are there too, or are you going to kill them all together, the wicked and the righteous? And the Lord suggests, Look, if I find 50 righteous people there, I'll save them all. And then Abraham humbly, I think, asks, Well, what if you find 10? And 10 is probably what he imagines is the size of Lot's family, at least the immediate family. So you can tell what he's thinking about. What if he just find 10 righteous people? His question is both personal and theological because Abraham loves his nephew like a son. He raised him when his own father had passed. But theologically, Abraham doesn't seem to consider it right to kill those that he views as innocent along with those God has deemed guilty. They don't deserve the same punishment. And so he challenges, in many ways, the Lord's integrity as a judge. And he asks him a very bold question. Well, shall not the judge of all the earth also be just? That's pretty bold. If You really consider what he's asking. In many ways, Abraham's judging the judge and telling him it would be unjust to do this. See, in comparison to the unrighteousness of the cities that Lot lives in currently, Sodom and then Gomorrah and some other cities, Abraham considers Lot righteous compared to their horrible people there. But we need to understand something that a person's standing with God and standing before God is not ever determined or found by comparing with other men. We play that game very easily, feeling better or worse compared to those we deem righteous and those we deem unrighteous, and that is a huge mistake. Someone standing before God is not based off of comparisons, because I guarantee you'll find someone who you think is worse than you to make yourself feel better. Moreover, what men deserve from God is never determined by our own opinions, nor is rightness decided by personal preference. I am confident that we in this group here disagree about a lot. But there's a rightness that God has dictated that puts our personal preferences, remain keeps them silent. They're irrelevant to what we think or feel. Our responsibility, especially to we read Scripture but in life, is not to question the rightness of God's judgments, but to simply receive them as good, even if we don't like them. Even if they're unpopular. Even if they feel yucky. Now, unapologetically, God judges sin in this chapter violently and completely. There's no way to read it differently. The judgment of God, though, is not a real popular topic in today's culture, and it's not even very popular in the church. Not to suggest it should be popular, but the phrase fire and brimstone is the kind of thing that we go, ooh, you're so fire and brimstone. If there is a fire and brimstone chapter in the Bible, it's Genesis 19. It seems that today we have become much more concerned with offending ungodly men than we are in offending God. As a result, governed by fear, people and pastors refuse to declare anything wrong. Instead of openly speaking the truth and doing so in love, even with gentleness but directness, they soften, they reinterpret, or even avoid the truth altogether. Refusing to speak of God's wrath plainly against sin, I believe, neuters the gospel. And it robs it of its power to actually save us from the sin that's being punished. God did not just forgive our sin by forgetting it and moving on. I hope we understand that. And if not, I hope you will by the time we're done. God poured out His full wrath in the same, similar, spiritual, and physical way that we see here in Genesis 19, on His Son. And He did so in our place for our sin. Like the cross, Genesis 19 reveals God's attitude toward sin. It's not merely a picture of what a few, quote, bad people in our minds deserve. It's what every human being ever born deserves. And like the cross, Genesis 19 is this crazy picture where justice and love come together. And like the cross, Genesis 19 is maybe best said is where hell meets grace. Passages like Genesis 19 are those ones, and they're few, but they are certainly them. Noah's Ark is one of them. We've had two in 19 chapters where God's wrath is on full display. And it's either going to make God's grace for you easier or more difficult to accept. And my prayer is that it makes God's grace that much larger for you. Let's take a look at this. Now, it's important to understand that there are countless cities that God could destroy here. Justly so. But Sodom in particular gives us a picture I think of, of an extreme level of depravity. Of how far things can go. How bad things can get. The angels who visit Abraham, or I'm sorry Lot come to uh, Sodom in the evening, and as they do, Lot meets them at the gate and immediately invites them into his home, almost like anxiously. And the men say, no, 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 we'll sleep in the town square, which is not an uncommon practice, but Lot knows how dangerous that's going to be. He knows his city well. And so he presses them strongly. He pretty much persuades and argues, no, guys, you need to come into my house tonight, right now. It's getting dark. And so they agree. And they have a nice dinner. And shortly before they go to bed, a crowd begins to surround Lot's house. The Bible says that all the men, it makes a very um, purposeful point, to say all the men, young and old, that would not be children, but young men, older men, all of the men of the city are around Lot's house. And they demand that the two men that they brought into the house be brought out so they can know them sexually. Can you just picture that? A city full of men around one house. And shockingly, and it is shocking, in an effort to appease what is pretty much a gang of rapists and protect the angels, Lot offers up his two daughters in exchange. Now, again, surprisingly, they deny that. No, we don't want that. We don't want that horrific offer And they quickly become violent. And they begin to try and break down the door. And then, think about this. Lot is outside. The angels pull him in. They strike everyone with blindness. But that doesn't send them fleeing. It says they are blind now and got worn out trying to grope at the door. That didn't stop them. Just hindered them a little bit. So you get the picture of a gravely, ugly, gross, deeply sinful city. Now, in the late 20th century, there were some misguided teachers who falsely taught that the sin of Sodom was not sexual, it was just social. They're just flat out wrong. And you have to do some serious interpretive yoga to try and get that to that point. In truth, let me just be plain about it. The destruction of Sodom is a bold condemnation on sexual immorality generally and homosexuality particularly. Now, it's my conviction that there is no better gauge on the spiritual condition of a culture than their view of sexuality. You want to know how depraved a culture is, consider their view of sexuality, which includes a lot of things. For better or worse, I believe how men in particular view sexuality shapes the community, governs the community. So if you want to look at our culture and go, who's to blame for this? I would argue men. One's view of sexuality impacts a person's identity, a culture's morality, our health, our relationships, it even impacts our economy. Generations, and particularly the 20th century, but going forward and backward, generations have proven how a perverted view of sexuality destroys individuals and destroys marriages and families and careers and legacies and communities. It is the thing, the assault that is happening on our culture today and on our church. Now, Peter, it's interesting, in his second epistle, chapter 2, references Sodom Gomorrah along with the people of Noah and his day. And he begins later in that second chapter to compare it to his own culture. And here's what he describes the people of his own culture. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I just used the words in a large section and kind of put them together. He describes them as rebellious, blasphemous, idolatrous men who have forsaken what is right and act like irrational animals. Sounds like Genesis 19. Sounds like America 2016. Enslaved to their sensual passions, he says, they have an insatiable appetite for sin and a great disdain for all authority. No one can tell me what's right. We make our own rules. Sounds like Genesis 19. Sounds like America 2016. They revel in their deceptions, they feast on the vulnerable, they boast in themselves, they entice with pleasure, and they bring corruption to themselves and the world. That's how Peter describes his own culture in the first century. And I'm not sure things have gotten much better. This is the heart of Sodom that I believe Peter describes, but it's actually the heart of our own culture that we live in. But I will say this, and I think it's important, if Genesis 19 was only about sexual sin, which I think is, is iconic, if you will, and, and, and exemplative of how depraved a culture is, but if it's only about sexual sin, many of us, but certainly not most of us, would dismiss Genesis 19 as that doesn't really apply to me, I don't struggle with that, which that's possible, it's possible you're lying too. Genesis 19, however, is, I want to be clear, not just about a sin. It's actually about our addiction to sin that we all struggle with. Before we are in Christ, before anyone is in Christ, they live in Sodom. They live away from the presence of God, and they live worshiping something else as God, which will cause them to sacrifice everything they love for. So it may not be this, but I guarantee you it was or perhaps is something. Before Christ, we all live in Sodom. Now, Lot, interestingly enough, is described or probably best described as a believer living in Sodom. Why do I say that? Well, in that same epistle, the beginning of the second chapter, Peter says that Lot's a righteous dude. He says, Lot... Um, is in living in Sodom was a righteous man who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked for as that righteous man lived among them day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot, according to Peter, struggled living in the city but not enough to leave the city. But Peter calls him a righteous man, we'll say a believer, who's choosing to live in this place, perhaps thinking, I can handle it, it's not that big a deal, it's not going to overwhelm me. Now, clearly, Lot's interactions with the angels distinguish him a little bit differently from the culture he's living in. First, he makes a point to invite, obviously, the angels uh, into his home to, to protect them Seems to be implied. When they surround his house, Lot steps out, puts himself between these people and the angels. He, in many ways, exposes himself, makes himself vulnerable. Not everyone would do that. When he's talking to the men outside, he tells them, brothers, which is a problem right there, friends, which is a problem right there, but he says, don't do this wicked thing. He does tell them it's wrong of which they get violent. They're like, who are you to judge us? Ever heard that? And finally, after being protected by the angels, by casting blind, he does eventually go warn those he loves that destruction's coming. He does believe what the angels have told him. But there's still this minor issue of him offering up his daughters. And There's no way to cut that and go, well, that's better. I mean, you just can't. What father would ever say that was okay? But the thing, the important thing is remember, as as we sit in judgment on Lot, because it's easy to sit there, right? Like, I could never do that. Put a pause button on that for a second. Lot didn't get to where he has where he is overnight. It didn't happen like this. I've never met a couple that's getting divorced that said, hey, right before we got married, we thought, hey, seven years, let's get divorced. What do you say? I'll get addicted to porn? You have an affair? Be great. Right? No one ever does that. No one ever plans for those things to happen. Perhaps they don't plan for them not to happen, though. Lot didn't get to this point he is overnight. Lot I would say, slowly fell into Sodom as he slowly moved away from the presence of God. And over time, he stopped living in accord with God's promises and he isolated himself from God's people. What did he do? He stopped living in accord with God's promises that he knew and started living apart from God's people. He isolated himself. The progression from Genesis 13 where Lot first looks where he wants to go. Remember they had a big fight and they were like, where are we going to go? And Lot saw the Jordan Valley where Sodom and Gomorrah was and there was great wickedness. Ah, I'm going to go there. Ever since there to where he is now, there was a very clear progression. If you, if you read those chapters again, you would see in Genesis 13, the first thing, what? He saw Sodom. He just looked at it. Ooh, that looks nice. Later in Genesis 13, it says he pitched his tent near Sodom. He didn't go in, he just got real close. Then, later in Genesis 14, it says by that point he's living in Sodom. Remember when the battle came and he was taken captive and then Abraham went and saved him? He had been living in Sodom at the time. Then he was captured with the city of Sodom. But when we meet him here in Genesis 19, where is he? At the gate. He is one of the leaders of Sodom. The gate was a place where the respected rulers stood and they would make judgments and they would guide the city and make decisions for them. He is not just uh, uh, an attendee. He is a full participant in shaping the city. It is very dangerous to forget the promises of God and wander from his people. I believe that meditating on God's promises and communing with God's people regularly protects you from such hardship. It doesn't prevent all hardship from happening. But when temptations and hardship comes, I believe it helps you endure in a way that you never could. See, worldly pursuits are very slow, but they over time give birth to very sinful consequences and left unchecked, what is very a small compromise at first ends up in a great catastrophe and I don't know if you could if you would call giving your daughters up to be raped by a gang of men a catastrophe, but I would. And Again, I'm not trying to to simplify, but just think about this. A little less time listening to God's wisdom will invariably mean a little more time listening to the world. And a little less time communing with God's people means a little more time communing with the world. And a little less time committing my plans to the Lord And submitting my will to his means a little more time pursuing pleasure in what I want. To paraphrase one pastor, Brian reminded me, said this, that without the presence of God in your life, we are all capable of anything. When we read this, we go, no way I would ever get there. And I've heard that same from marriages falling apart, from men with huge addictions and women from addictions, I never thought I'd be here. It didn't happen overnight. Sin is powerful and sin is impartial. And it gets to a point where it's irrational, as Peter said, makes us irrational animals. Sin gives false promises we love, but in time it ends up taking what we truly love most. And I do not believe that Lot, when he first envisioned living in the Jordan Valley, he ever could have imagined the situation. I don't believe he ever imagined he would be offering up his daughters like he did. And of course, it's unlikely we're going to experience the exact same thing. But I would ask us all to consider something. Because it begins slowly. What is it that we are looking and longing for? Or or where is it that we are, um, maybe dangerously so, pitching our tents next to something, putting a toe in the water? Or where is it that we have chosen to live, figuratively speaking, and even affirm? And ask yourself this. This. Because I think it's Keller who says, it's not that um, we want bad things, we sin, it's that we want good things too badly. And many good things can become terrible idols. But ask yourself, of those things, the things you're affirming and living in and pursuing and longing for, maybe just getting close to, do you find yourself as you engage in that thing and indulge in that thing and participate in that thing, whatever it is, that that is moving you closer to the presence of God or further away? Do you feel like that's growing you in the Lord and making your affections for the Lord grow and your affections for God's people increase? Or is it doing the very opposite? In truth, Lot deserves to die with the city that he has chosen to love. It's important to remember that. Lot as much as Peter calls him a righteous man, is really not any more righteous than any sinner. Despite the fact that Lot dove headfirst into sin, became a leader in this city that God Himself describes as a city of great wickedness, grave evil. Despite that he is a leader in this city. Despite the fact that he has exposed his family to great wickedness. That he's put his family into a place where they are vulnerable. I guarantee you, this wasn't the first time this kind of thing happened. Despite the fact that he fails to protect his daughters. God saves him. We see that? God saves him from his stupidity, from his sin, from his deliberate rebellion. God saves him. Before Christ, everyone lives in Sodom. But through Christ, God graciously brings us out, and at times, that's kicking and screaming. Like we kind of view our salvation as like, you know, I remember the day when I just decided, Lord, I just love you. And I'm inviting you into my heart to experience this love. That's not how it happened. Here's how you need to view your salvation for those who are in Christ. Your world was a burning prison of sin that you did not want to leave, though it's burning to the ground. And God reached in and grabbed you, kicking and screaming, out of it. That's salvation. That's grace. And as we see Lot being saved in the backdrop of this horrible sin, including his own, I want you to see grace. The next morning, Lot gets up. The angels urge him to get his family and and get out And as he thinks about it, it says, the Bible says, he lingers. Now we know he believes it's going to happen. He's gone and warned his son in laws. But he lingers, he delays, he struggles to obey what he knows is right. That doesn't sound like any of us, right? I know this is right, I know this is bad. And though, again, Lot deserves to get what his delay has earned him, God shows mercy. And his mercy comes in the form of angels grabbing him and dragging him out of the city. Now, mind you, they're not taking his luggage probably with him. It's just him. And because Lot has yet to see the impending doom, right? The angel's actions probably feel anything but merciful. What are you doing? Fire hasn't fallen yet and they're being dragged like he might be bothered. Give me a minute. Let me pack my stuff. No, you don't got a minute. And they're dragging him out. I am convinced that God will ruin our timelines, our lifestyles and our comfort if it means saving our lives. He'll ruin it. He will wreck our day. He will wreck our year. He will wreck our life if it means saving our life. And Lot is warned, okay, you're out now. Go. Run to the hills. And the hills, remind you, the last time he was on a hill was when he was with Abraham. Looking down in the Jordan Valley. So what is he really pointing to? You start going west, young man. Go west. And we talked about the idea of east and west, and and east was really symbolic in the Bible of away from the presence of God, and west was toward it. That's where Abraham was. That's where God's people were. He's like, go, run to the hills, flee from this place. And we might expect Lot to go, okay. All right, let's do this. Let's get out of here. Mind you, he has... Seems a couple daughters still left in the city. It's hard to interpret. Sometimes it's as if he had a couple other daughters who were going to marry his these sons, son-in-laws. But he has two daughters with him. But instead he offers an alternative. How about the little city of Zor? Now, if you were to go back to Genesis 13, you would see when he first looked at the Jordan Valley, he said, Ooh, look at the Jordan Valley from Sodom to Zor. It's a city still in the valley. See, Lot really proves that he doesn't want to be what we'll call all in with God because he doesn't or is unwilling to be all out of the world. He wants to stay, stay close still. He doesn't really want to cut it off. And though it's only a little city, he says that multiple times. It's just a little city. It's just a little one. Right? It's not Sodom. It's a big sin, like big wicked. It's just a little one. It's just a little, little compromise. There's little, no big deal. Physically, Lot's life has been saved, but I think spiritually he's gonna lose it. We don't hear about Lot after this chapter. God punished the unrighteous Sodom by actively destroying it with fiery asphalt from the sky. But I sometimes wonder, like Lot, if he passively punishes us by giving us exactly what we want. And that's what he does with Lot. And Lot's really no different than his wife. We hear much about Lot's wife. Lot lingered, and it says his wife lagged behind. Lingering, lagging. She turned as she's in Zoar, looking back at the cities that as the sulfur is falling and things are burning, she looks back. And she looks back, perhaps considering how everything she ever valued is being consumed. It's possible she was from that city. But the problem wasn't that she just lagged behind. The problem was she looked back and she was loving what she saw. Her look was more than a glance, but a longing for something more than God. And for her idolatry, she's turned into a pillar of salt. A pillar of salt. In the Bible, a pillar is a memorial, typically, that is used for future generations to remember something. And this is why Jesus, in Luke 17, warns those he is teaching to remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife, for whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus said that when teaching about his second coming in the same section, there'd be a time when the kingdom of God would arrive in its fullness. And Jesus speaks about the imminence of that day, how it can come in any moment, and we are not to waste our time in pursuit of the wrong things. Because like the day of the flood, and like the fires of Sodom, the day of judgment came quickly, and there was no tomorrow. There was no valuing what your life was going to be. There was a willingness to let it go if it meant being with God. Now, as we close, I want to bring this all to a point that I think is um, amazing. The passage ends with Abraham getting up early in the morning to see if um, what God said was going to happen would happen. And so there's this sense where he's like kind of running out to the hills where he had first seen the cities. And he surveys the land and he sees the entire valley burning and smoke coming up. And in his view, nothing and no one escaped. And can we imagine for a second maybe how he felt, because there is no indication that he knows Lot's been saved. You never hear an interaction with him and Lot in the future. He's never told. Even though God's grace had changed the circumstances, he is not told of that. And even though God's grace changed the circumstances for Lot. Lot himself and his heart doesn't actually ever change. Abraham sees that judgment has come down, and Lot, meanwhile, is hiding in a cave. His refusal to fully flee from uh, the sin, if you will, of that culture had its effect on generations. And the chapter ends, which I won't get into, but telling us how his two daughters got their dad drunk so they could have Babies And those babies uh, are raised up to be the Moabites and the Ammonites, one of the two greatest enemies of Israel. In the end, if you look at a map, you'll see the Moabites and the Ammonites are east. And in many ways, Lot's, Lot's family, generations past him, continues east and continues away from the presence of God. But interestingly enough, which I didn't read, at the beginning of Genesis 20, Abraham has a different response to God's wrath. You'll see at the beginning of Genesis 20, Abraham moves west immediately. And he journeys to a city called Gerar that's right almost in the center of Canaan. Symbolically, I believe, he is moving deeper into God's presence. Wanting to be away from the east that he saw judge. Wanting nothing to do with the sin that he saw God was so serious about. Observing the wrath of God inspired Abraham and strengthened his faith. Even though he felt, Lord, aren't you going to be just? From his view, he wiped out everybody and God said, yes I am. And he received that as just judgment. The judgment of Sodom is dreadful. And it is really in many ways beyond our comprehension. Sin without doubt, has been judged. But there will be a day of judgment coming for anyone who doesn't take God's escape plan. The Bible says in Matthew 11 that it will be more bearable on the day for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who have rejected God's grace. It will be more bearable for those of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for those who have rejected God's grace in Christ. See, for many, when you read Genesis 19, the story may cause you to actually question God's grace and question God's love. But God's grace is the very thing I pray you will see as the only way of escape. Please hear me very clearly. Nothing can save you from God's wrath but God himself. Nothing can save you from God's wrath but God himself. See, there are lots of other religions. This is, this is the most important part of Christianity. There are lots of other religions with moral standards, condemning the things that we've read in here. There are lots of other religions and groups, if you will, organizations that, that have a judgment or future judgment on sin. But there is one thing that distinguishes the Christian faith from every other religion that exists, and that is the gospel. Only Christianity maintains that the just wrath of God was combined with His love on the cross. The gospel tells us that our sin deserves hell, that our sin deserves fire and brimstone. But Jesus, literally, the Son of God, literally faced hell for us so we would not have to. That's grace. The gospel doesn't take the wrath away. The gospel doesn't say, oh no, there's no judgment. It says there is a judgment, but it's been poured out on someone for you, in your place for your sin. And if you will run to Jesus, if you will run to Jesus and receive him as your only rescuer and follow him as your only Lord, he promises to be your refuge. God's wrath is certain. God's wrath is complete. But think about this. Just as the fire and Abraham saw that it didn't just consume people, it consumed everything. And just as the fire consumed every little teeny wicked shrub of sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, so the blood of Christ covers everything. Teeny, weeny, and big sin that you have ever committed, or anything that has been committed against you. Escape his just judgment. There's only one name given under heaven through which men may be saved, and that name is Jesus. He is the sacrifice for your sin. Escape your guilt, escape your shame, escape your fear, escape your punishment and accept his forgiveness, and accept his righteousness, accept his love, and accept his grace. And don't linger, because there may not be a tomorrow. And don't stop, and don't ever look back. Let's pray. Oh, Father, You are an almighty God, and You are serious about our sin. The cross reveals to us, Lord, how ugly our sin is, how serious You are about our sin, that You would send Your Son, Your eternal Son, to die in our place. That's how bad our sin is. Lord, as we look at the unrighteousness around us, would you restrain us from considering ourselves more righteous than they? Would you remind us all that, Lord, we are the people who live in Sodom, that before Christ we all indulge, we all worship something or someone other than you. We all ran away from your presence, but by grace, Lord, you chase after us. By grace, Lord, you pull us out of the burning prison that we fight to get from. Help us to enjoy your grace. Help us to know your grace. Help us to see you as a God who hates sin but loves his people who are sinners. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your power. Thank you for the confidence we have to call you Father, that we are your children. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.